quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. This world works not when you go after things for your own benefit, but when you look to others and ask, what do they need and how can I help them? Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today we are joined by Ben Bauer. Ben is a real estate investment lawyer. His firm is The Bauer Firm, LLC. He has also been a very active real estate investor, but has shifted away from that to focus on his legal practice. That said, he still owns eight units from a single family rental to small multifamilies here in Cincinnati. Ben, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. Well, I think a lot of folks will know me through my mother, although I try not to hide in her shadow. My mother's Donna Bauer, who is a national speaker on notes. So from early on, I remember going back to the 1980s when my mom first got in real estate. She bought a multifamily in Cincinnati here. And I remember her and her brother who were partners on the deal. I was a little kid driving over there in the car with my brothers and basically mom trying to make everything happen need a roofer there to replace the roof and do the rehab and all this stuff. So I started really young in that sense, being around real estate and real estate investors. I heard a lot of names early on that stuck with me. Back then, I just remember my mom had these Charles Givens tape. I don't even know who Charles Givens is these days, but back in the 80s, I think he was a big deal. And then my mom was on the board of RIA. I first got into real estate in 2001, not as an investor, but working for a title company. That was kind of my introduction to things. And that title company was really focused on real estate investors. So at that point, I started being part of Cincinnati RIA. That's what I think I first met Vina. I don't really remember, but somewhere around then. And got to know the local folks here. And at that time, I bought my first house. And that didn't last very long. We lived there for about two years. And then that was my first investment property. I bought another house and just didn't sell the first one. And then expanded on from there. I didn't stay with the title company forever. I've always been in real estate one way or another, going all the way back to that point in 2001. But I ended up shifting and going to law school and all that kind of stuff. But there was a, a short period, it was right before the 08 crash, that's how I remember it so well, where I had this one rental and a good friend of mine, a guitar buddy, we both played guitar and hung out all the time. He was a rehabber, not a rehabber in the real estate investor sense, but he fixed up houses. And he had this little thing he'd do where he'd buy a house for $5,000 in east side of Hamilton, cash, he'd move into it. How he possibly lived in these houses that were so run down, I don't know. But then he put his money into these houses, fix them up, and then sell them, make 30, 40, 50 grand, go out to California and drive around like Moab in his Jeep for three or four months until he ran out of money and come back home and do it again. So he knew how to do that. And I knew how to find deals. Again, because I was just working with so many folks through RIA at that time. And we put our minds together. And that was my first real foray into real estate investing. We bought a number of houses with the intent to fix and flip, but I ultimately ended up fixing and holding. So what we have to remember is around that 05 and 06 time, the market was still pretty good. But as we got into like 07, 08, mm, not so much. And I was chasing this number where if my ARV was 80, it dropped down to 72. And I, so it got to the point where it was easier to refinance and hold only because I was chasing a declining market. 
So I ended up with about, I don't know what the number was, probably high teens or maybe 20 rental properties around then. I wish I had stuck through that crash and I probably could have. I was a lot younger back then, obviously, as we all were, right? But if I knew what I know now, I would have played that differently. I'd probably be sitting on a pretty good portfolio just from that. Anyway, that was around 08. And then uh, got back into things uh, 15 or 16 and just started buying rental properties. Bought a lot smarter that time, focused on two specific geographic areas intentionally, having learned that owning rental properties across the entire greater Cincinnati area wasn't the, the smartest idea, especially if you're cutting the grass yourself. Also a mistake, by the way. So I focused on two areas. I would still have those properties, but two, three years ago when the market really started to just go crazy in terms of being a seller's market, we sold most of them. So I had these houses that were pretty much C or below inventory. And honestly, I was worried at the time I was going to get my money back out of them. I, the cash flowed fine, but in terms of just selling and getting my investment back, for example, I had a $40,000 house in Hamilton that I think I kind of overpaid for. But then these hedge funds were buying up properties like crazy. And I've got almost 60 grand offered to me for that property. I'm like, that's a no brainer. So those opportunities kept coming and I took them and we sold most of the inventory. So we're down to what we are now. And honestly, I've been focusing more on the law practice for the last year. That's where I'm at now. Ben, there's a lot to cover in there. I've got a couple of questions that I thought I'd end up asking. For those of you listeners who didn't already catch on, Ben and I know each other outside of this podcast. We're both members of the Greater Cincinnati Real Estate Investors Association run primarily by Vena Jones-Cox that Ben referenced earlier. Ben, for the sake of the questions that I want to ask, let me intro you the way I have introed you to people that I've referred to you to be a potential client. Ben, as a real estate or real estate investor attorney, is more of a litigator and a contracts guy than he is just like a title company or a purely transactional, get you from point A to point B, get the property bought or sold kind of attorney. So if there's a lawsuit involved or there's a complicated negotiation that you need to figure out how to get on paper, Ben's your guy. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I'll step back a little bit and talk about my practice areas. I think commonly you see two major areas that attorneys focus on besides the niche areas. You have guys that are primarily litigators and they really don't do any transactional work. And then vice versa, you have people that are more transactional. So they're focusing on putting deals together, document preparation, LLC and entity formation, those kind of things. My practice is unique in that what I do is really real estate investor oriented, not solely, but primarily. So I do a little bit of both in terms of the transactional side. Now, I don't do any title work, but I do have a lot of title experience in my past and I'm well-versed in all that. But for the transactional side, I do a lot of note and mortgage preparation. I do a lot of contract preparation. I do a lot of entity formation. And that's usually a twofold deal where I'm forming a company and then I'm helping an investor get their properties into the company. So but forming LLC, preparing the deeds, making sure all that gets recorded. So there's some title company-like functions in there, but I'm filling in the attorney gaps that the title company can't cover more than anything else on that end. Litigation for me, I do a handful of things with litigation. If it's normal, we're suing each other litigation, it's usually a breach of contract case. So I deal with those. I deal with some issues with contractors. I deal with the roof is leaking. You didn't tell me about it when you sold me the house kind of lawsuits, things of that nature. And then there's a lot of things that are like litigation, but 
don't really fall in the worst suing you litigation. That's things like foreclosure and probate, even evictions. So I touch a little bit in all those areas, uh, but I don't really deep dive into any of them, if that makes sense. It does, Ben. Given that experience representing investors the last several years, our listener base is primarily real estate investors, either actively or passively involved, primarily in apartment investing, but across all asset classes. Speaking personally, I know that the legal ramifications of being an operator of rental real estate, especially, often I fear that there are unknown unknowns that I'm doing something wrong that I don't know is wrong until it's too late. And I am sure that that feeling resonates with a lot of our listeners. Question for you, the real estate investor attorney, Ben, is what are the unknown unknowns that you've had investors come to you with that were actually problems? What are the things that your clients or the people who have come to you have done that they didn't realize were problematic? Are there themes there? Are there a few things that come up often? I definitely think there's some themes there. It probably one way or another will all stem back to just having good foundations in place. From the landlording side, probably lease preparation, the actual document itself is going to be one of the big aspects that are important to get right from a foundational perspective. So what you don't want to do is just pull a lease off of the internet. Leases are state-specific. Ohio's going to have laws that are different than Kentucky, that are different than anywhere else. There's some uniformity, especially with the Landlord-Tenant Act. There's a model act that a lot of states have adopted, but some of them adopt it in full. Some of them adopt it with their own little variances, and some of them don't really follow it directly at all. So you want to be careful. And then there are things that I don't even know where they come from, but they end up in leases, and they just really don't belong there. They get you in trouble. Things like attorney's fees provisions. Well, like in Ohio, the Ohio Revised Code specifically says you're not allowed to collect attorney's fees as a landlord. So if I've got that in my lease and I'm before a magistrate and the magistrate sees that, to me, that's just a red flag to the magistrate to be on the lookout for other things that are problematic. I've now got a strike against me before the magistrate. That's not necessarily wrong per se. I'm not going to go enforce that attorney's fees provision, but all these little things do add up. I don't know if I've seen many that are catastrophic. There's some deals that where somebody truly did get something wrong, but it's not that they didn't know. Each situation is unique, right? Nobody's trying to intentionally mess anything up, but if they get counsel early on and make sure that at least on the first deal that they do, it may cost a little more to have an attorney involved. You don't have to even be an attorney. Formally, I'd always recommend getting counsel, right? But if you've got somebody else that's done this a number of times who has had their attorney look at it and you're working off some of their things, I'm thinking of a mentorship relationship where you've got a seasoned investor. Make sure you're on a good footing when you start leasing or doing whatever you're doing. I think that's 90% of it. That makes a lot of sense. You were saying earlier that the vast majority of the litigation you do ends up resulting from breach of contracts. At least the lease agreement would be an example of one of those contracts for sure. What other kinds of breach of contract issues do you come across in your practice? Most common breach of contract case is a seller that decides they don't want to sign. They get seller's remorse. That's pretty common in real estate investor circles just because by nature we tend to buy distressed property and we tend to buy under market. Why? Because that's how we make money. That's what we do. But they signed that contract for a reason. Maybe they didn't want to deal with the property anymore. Maybe, maybe we were taking on problems that they couldn't deal with. It's not necessarily as simple as, well, why didn't you just list it on the MLS, right? But for whatever reason, usually it's they decide they can get more money from someone else. 
they decide not to close. So they can either say, we want out of the contract or they can just stop answering the phone. But either way, the next thing coming for me is a demand letter saying, you got to perform on the contract, you sign the contract, you're in breach of the contract, and we're going we're gonna to sue you to enforce the contract if you don't pick up the phone and call us. And then ultimately that'll go into litigation. Kind of going back to your last question about things that you could do, the wording of your contract becomes really important at that point. If you get to the point of litigation, you want to have some things in your contract that position you really well, not just to win the case, but to make your case a high settlement value. To me, that's things like an attorney's fees provision. So we talked about in the lease idea, at least in Ohio, you can't have an attorney's fees provision. But in a real estate purchase contract, you absolutely want the attorney's fees provision. And that's huge for settlement value because now they're going, well, wait a second, I might be willing to roll the dice to see if I win this case, but I'm not sure I'm going to. And if I lose, now not only am I going to be forced to sell the property, but I'm going to have to pay their attorney too. So now it's much more likely to result in a settlement where somebody offers money or just comes to the table. Maybe they'll even say, we had a property contract at, at 90. We really want 95. Now you've at least opened the door to have that conversation versus they're going to go to sell somebody else. So all of that stuff plays together. I kind of got off track a little bit there, Slocum, but hopefully that answered the question. Yes, that's very helpful. It makes a lot of sense that that's the most common breach of contract that you're litigating. We'll get back to the show with a first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor struggling to streamline your property management? Are you tired of juggling multiple systems to effectively manage your portfolio? Meet Rentech Direct, your ultimate solution for automating management tasks, reducing errors, and most importantly, saving you time. Rentech Direct offers an all-in-one platform for accounting, marketing, tenant screening, rent collection, and much more. And the best part? You're never alone. With U.S.-based live support and award-winning customer service, Rentech Direct is the partner you need to streamline your property management so you can focus on what's most important, growing your business and getting more deals done. If you're an investor looking to grow your portfolio, join the more than 15,000 investors and landlords who manage real estate assets totaling more than $200 billion using Rentech Direct. Just go to rentechdirect.com forward slash best ever and sign up for a free trial. Plans start at just $45 a month and you'll receive 20% off your first year just for being a best ever listener. That's R-E-N-T-E-C direct.com forward slash best ever for 20% off. A similar question that I probably should have asked the first time is, what are the mistakes that you're seeing real estate investors making outside of not having a quote unquote bulletproof lease? What other mistakes are you seeing that investors make and then come to you to help clean up for them? I don't want to say that it's always a document issue, but boy, that is the most common issue. If you're dealing with anything complicated in deal structure, so not complicated is I'm just buying and I'm financing it. Okay, no problem. Or I'm selling and you're giving me money at closing for whatever it is. Complicated to me would be something involving multiple parties, maybe sandwich lease option, anything to do with like a land installment contract where you still have a seller in the picture, even though they only have a little bit of rights with respect to the property. And then maybe you're trying to sell it to somebody else. How do you put that kind of deal together? Anything where you've got carryback financing, wrap mortgages, those kind of things. It's hard for me as a real estate investor. I'm so DIY minded. And I think we all are. That's one of the greatest assets we have as real estate investors. 
But this is a situation where these aren't things that you want to DIY. Maybe your second and third time around, but again, your first time around. So it's not just the document itself, but the actual structure and what makes sense and what works. Get good legal counsel or, again, at least be talking to other folks that have have good experience. It's difficult because even with folks with experience, sometimes I see, we've been doing it this way for 20 years. I'm like, you have, and you've been lucky that it didn't blow up. It's the wrong way to do it. But you could talk to folks, especially in your local real estate investor groups, and get a good sense of who knows what they're doing and who doesn't. And that's word of mouth, too. I think that's really important, the networking aspect. In our local RIA, before the meeting, there's a little period of time where we can all congregate and talk. I get more out of that than anything else I do in terms of networking. I see good old friends, not that they're old, but good handle. And it's good to catch up with those guys, especially some people I haven't seen in a while. But then they'll put me in touch with other people. I'll say, I'm working on this, or I'm looking for this, or I might even have a client that needs something. And they can put me in touch with the right people. So that network is how you find those people that are the ones that know what they're doing. And believe me, your peers and your friends in the RIA groups know. That makes a lot of sense. We're recording in the fourth quarter of 2023. And given the overarching macroeconomic conditions, Ben, one thing that's been very popular among real estate investors recently, again, across asset classes and across property sizes and values has been seller finance mortgages. Do you have some recommendations, do's and don'ts on how to structure that seller financing in a purchase contract? Sure. So I take you to mean... There's a real estate investor I'm buying and the seller of the property is going to take payments for some of that money over time. I'm not thinking of in terms of my exit strategy where I'm trying to sell and I might finance to a buyer. That invokes some federal lending laws, Dodd-Frank and things like that, at least potentially, that are a sticky wicket. That's a whole different conversation. In terms of just buying on terms, the way I usually structure it is I call it out specifically in the purchase contract. And I probably go into a lot more detail than most attorneys. I don't know that, but definitely most contracts that I just see generally. So the contract itself, how you pay for the purchase price is going to have a few components and they may vary from transaction to transaction. You may or may not have earnest money. In Ohio, it's not required to have earnest money. So if I don't have to pay earnest money, I'm not going to put it down. Beyond that, you're going to have money due at closing. That money due at closing could be getting a loan, that money can be seller financing, that money can be cash out of your pocket or any combination of those things. So I'm calling out specifically in that how to pay the purchase price section. So purchase price is $100,000. I'm going to call specifically out how all that's paid consisting of bullet point one, earnest money deposit in the amount of $5,000 payable within concurrently with the execution of the contract, maybe within five business days, three business days, some amount of time, but more or less now. Then, however I split up the next, each is going to be a separate bullet point. Then maybe bullet point two is seller carry back note and mortgage in the form attached exhibit A. So now I'm actually putting the note and mortgage that I want into the contract as an exhibit. It's not signed when you sign the contract, it's signed at closing. But I do that because I don't want any question about, well, you said there wasn't going to be a prepayment penalty. We agree that we're going to do 80,000 in terms over five years, 5% interest rate, I, you can make it up whatever you want to on your terms. But even if you agree on that base set of terms, there's still a lot of things that could be left open to interpretation. 
I don't want any of those to be an issue after we sign the contract. That's why I'm attaching a draft note and mortgage to the contract. So there's just no question. The seller can't come back two weeks later and say, well, this isn't the terms I agreed to on the note. Because you're always going to go back to the contract and say, look, this is what we put on the exhibit. We put it there to say these are the terms. Down to every last thing, this is the actual document we're going to fill out and sign when we go to closing. So I do that. So you'll have those specific bullet points. And then at some point, if there's any money left over in the remainder, payable in cash. All that's at closing other than the earnest money. Really, the rest of the contract, I'm not going to deal with the financing. I deal with it all in that purchase price area. Sounds like the biggest piece of advice there is to make sure that you're upfront in writing about exactly how the terms of that seller financing will work, including going ahead and having the mortgage and note drawn up so that the seller is not necessarily signing them when they sign the contract, but is aware of exactly how they read when they're signing the purchase contract to make sure that they are cognizant, comfortable, confident with what those terms are at the closing table. That's exactly right. This is a theme throughout contracts generally, whether that's a purchase contract or a lease or anything else. I err on the side of granular detail. I think I'm a little bit unique in that, certainly as a real estate investor. Again, I don't know so much as an attorney, but that's the right way to do it. The tough ones for me are when I get into litigation and you've got your boilerplate, ideally two or three page real estate contract because you want short enough for sellers to sign if you're meeting them on site. But invariably, there's a little section toward the end, usually a few blank lines where you could write in other terms. And I might see a purchase contract used to buy or sell on a lease option. And I'll just write in the purchase price in the main part of the contract. And then at that little part of the end, sale to be a lease option. <laughs> and without more information, you need a monthly payment. You need to know how much of the payments credited toward the purchase price, if any. How long is it going to be before the option can be exercised? And when does it need to be exercised by? Who's responsible for repairs? Does that get tacked onto the price? All those things. Who pays taxes and insurance? So those little sections where you handwrite things in are good, but bear in mind that you can't change a contract using just that little <laughs> miscellaneous section. You got to be careful. You got to be real thorough if you do. Again, best practice. It's hard because if you're on site with a seller or a buyer and you want to get that contract signed right away, I get that. Sometimes you don't want to lose a deal. But at least then come back and do a proper amendment after the fact. It spells everything out. Hey, yeah, that's the time to get an attorney involved if you're not sure. I'm going to call out every term that is pertinent. Anything that I can think of, I'm going to be very thorough about it every time. That would be my advice to folks. Ben, last question before we transition the episode. I wasn't aware of your mother being a famous real estate investor or you growing up around real estate investing as a child. I am a full-time real estate investor with young kids though, and I'm trying to bring them up around what I'm doing professionally. And there are some values, some things I want them to learn from experiencing me working in real estate. What impact would you say now looking back on your childhood experience what impact would you say that being around the real estate investing activity of your mother is having on you professionally now as an adult? Well, that's a good question. As you were asking the question there, I was just kind of thinking back on things. I did exactly opposite of what my mother did. My mom always said, you don't want tenants, trash, or toilets to deal with. So she always did know she didn't want to own the houses, or at least that was her focus, right? And and what do I do? I buy a bunch of rehabs, fix them up. I don't do any notes and then end up with a bunch of rental properties. And I think there's this aspect of I don't want to just be in my parents' shadow for better or for worse. It took me a long time to realize that my mom is really a fountain of knowledge. 
I'll call her nowadays on a complicated note deal. And I just, can you just reality check me on this? And I'm not asking for legal advice. I'm just like, have you seen this before? Because I get some weird stuff, as I'm sure you can imagine. I think being a parent, I've got two young kids too. I think it's about them being exposed to the entrepreneurial mindset, most importantly, whatever that is, doesn't have to be real estate investing. Just this idea that I don't need to be stuck in this rat race of a job. My entrepreneurial business right now is really the law firm and that could be a job, but I've opened up my own firm and done that, gone that direction. So it's very similar in that sense. I think it's important for the kids to see that. And other than that, just anytime they have a question, encourage the questions. They'll be excited about it on their own, but I would never obviously push it or force it or anything like that. Just encourage it. Always foster that environment. I think that's the most important part. That makes a lot of sense. Ben, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's go for it. We're running a little long. We're going to have to keep this quick. So it's just two questions this time. What is the best ever book you recently read? Peter Zion, Z-E-I-H-A-N. The end of the world is just the beginning. Great stuff about population, demographics, what's really going on in the world. It will change how you look at things. And what is your best ever advice? This world works not when you go after things for your own benefit, but when you look to others and ask, what do they need and how can I help them? And then you will find that all the things that you want and that you need are taken care of as you meet those other people's needs. Last question here. Where can our listeners get in touch with you? I am at Ben at the Bauer firm.com. Bauer is with an E B A U E R. And you can get me at 513-322-2400. That link and that phone number are in the show notes. Ben, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thanks, Locum. Really appreciate it. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.